consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed-making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed-making by letting Barton Cane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Cane, here for you. Visit www.bartoncane.com. Specializing in the finest assortment of oboes, clarinets, bassoons, and their accessories, RDG Woodwinds serves musicians around the world. Their employees are all professional musicians who have a deep knowledge of the products that they sell. RDG's repair shop has an international reputation with a combined 100 plus years of service among the five repair technicians. Plain and simple, RDG provides excellent products and fabulous customer service. Visit them at rdgwoodwinds.com. They look forward to working with you. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. summer it really is it's finally here oh my god i'm so excited and it's i'm in washington so it went from like 40 degree days to 80 degree days in a single week like we just kind of skipped over those 60 degree pretty spring days well this is mississippi it's been in the 80s for weeks now so i can only imagine Jackie, what are you doing this summer? Well, funny you should ask. Uh, <laughs> as if I haven't mentioned it. I know, not times. anything you haven't been talking about for like three months. <laughs> but it is now less than two weeks away. Actually, I have my countdown. Let me tell you exactly how many. It is 13 days until we fly out to New Zealand, but we're flying out of Seattle. So it's actually 11 days until we hit the road for Seattle to fly to New Zealand. And I am so excited. I'm like crawling out of my skin with excitement. I'm even finding myself excited for the plane ride. Like I'm researching like what are the best airplane pillows and like trying to find, you know, those like HBO shows that are so good that you want to like devour episode after episode. Mm-hmm. I was like, if we found one of those and downloaded a whole series, like maybe we could pass the time really quickly. Wait, I have a story. <laughs> so the last international flight that I was on, I went, uh, I was sitting next to my brother and, uh, you know, of course you can't like sleep because you're sitting upright. So I was like watching a show and then I stopped and then I like look over at my brother's screen and he's watching a show that like looks pretty stressful, but interesting. So I'm just like watching it over his shoulder and he turns to me and he's like, do you want to watch it on your own screen with sound? <laughs> and I was like, not really. I feel like it would stress me out too much, but I like watching it. <laughs> watching it over your shoulder and he's like you're crazy (laughs) i actually do have a pretty good track record of being able to sleep on planes so i'm just crossing my fingers but regardless we will get there and 
I'm, I'm just so excited. Like it just feels like this once in a lifetime opportunity. Like I don't, I, anyway, I'm just so excited and looking forward to it. And the best part, oh my gosh, we purchased new suitcases. Ooh, yes. Because up to, I didn't even think about purchasing suitcases. Like, I was like, doesn't everyone just use the suitcases that your mother and father-in-law gifted you 20 years ago and use those in perpetuity until the end of time or until they like break and spill all of your belongings on a tarmac? Like, that's just what I thought. Yeah. Or the wheels are broken and you're just like clank clanking down the (laughs) The zippers don't have any pull tabs. Like... (laughs) And then, yeah, conversation just kind of organically led to like, oh, maybe we should replace our suitcases over going to. It's probably smart to replace them before New Zealand. And we bought, it actually wasn't that expensive. It's not that expensive. It's just something you never think to do. And so, yes, we have four brand new suitcases of varying sizes and functions to replace our old suitcases. And that's maybe the funnest thing that has happened to me in like 10 years. I can't tell you how (laughs) excited I am about these suitcases. Highly recommend replacing your suitcases. It was, it's delightful. I used a new one this last weekend. I can just envision you bebopping down the hallway at the airport, just like rolling that brand new shiny suitcase. They're Nickelodeon orange. Yes, you know. You know, when your suitcase comes down, it's not the black from the 1980s that everyone has you have to be like oh is that mine oh no sorry sir that's yours oh no sorry if that suitcase is not about to slime you for getting the wrong answer on a game show then that's not the right suitcase then i'm not interested (laughs) (laughs) our listeners are gonna be like what are they talking about listen listen when we were kids people got slimed on tv okay if you don't get that elder millennial reference then You know, we can send you a syllabus uh, (laughs) for your own personal (laughs) development. What are you doing this week, this uh, summer? Glee, what does the season have in store for you? Well, I am performing a few concerts at our local summer, like, music. It's called Festival South. It's basically a month-long concert series festival that happens in Hattiesburg. So I'm performing in that a few times. It's going to be very fun and cool. And there's a lot of community engagement. Like people actually go to these. It's like a wide variety of different concerts and events and all sorts of stuff. It's great. Um, But in August, I am actually going to go to a music festival in Colombia in Cali, Colombia and uh, play with a faculty quintet. Uh, just go for a few days, uh, get some teaching and some performing in. And so that's going to be my big exciting thing. I really need to get my passport renewed. Uh, yeah. Oh, my God. Which that reminds me, we got TSA pre. Should I get that? Yes. Well, actually, we haven't <laughs> used it yet, but I'm so excited because I would always want it. And then you forget until you're at the airport and you see all the people zipping past you while you're standing in line for like five hours. Mm-hmm. And now I'm going to be one of those zippy people. And I'm so excited. I about love it. it. It's also like at the Spokane airport, that line moves very quickly, but it looks like you're going to be in line for a million years because it's winding all over the place. Yes. It's wild. Yes. I'm very happy for you. Thank you. <laughs> 
<laughs> Anything else before we get to our awesome listeners and their summer plans? Mm, not really. I mean, unless you count napping a lot. I'm going to do a lot of napping. And hanging out with your dogs. And hanging out with I my guess dogs. that's my last piece of summer news is when we return, we are going to get a dog. I'm going to continuously cry every time I see that dog. I'm so excited. I'm excited too. But we asked y'all mm-hmm. on our social media to tell me about what you are excited for this summer. And you have some amazing plans that we want to crash all of them. But let's dig in. Gwyneth says that she is excited for going to Thailand for a six-week study abroad trip on international music therapy. It will be a nice sabbatical from the oboe after this crazy semester. That sounds so cool. That sounds so cool. (laughs) And also how ironic that you are going to be followed to Thailand by the entire Double Read community. (laughs) She wants a break from the oboe. <laughs> the whole community is going to Thailand. There's going to be oboists left, right, and center. And she's like, ah. <laughs> she's going to be trying to do her music therapy practice. And it's going to be like. Except it'll be like. That's the villainous theme song of the oboe. That's right. So Annalena is gearing up for her senior recital, which is extremely exciting and sounds like a lot of practicing. So Annalena, I hope that you also get to take some naps in that. Absolutely. Similarly, Mariah is excited about starting her private studio. And uh, yeah, that's phenomenal. I believe, I know Mariah, so I believe she just graduated with her master's degree so congratulations and we you know are just cheering you on as you start your private studio business bassoon empire but yes remember to rest as well so i love this submission andrea says amateur oboist here heading off to adult chamber music camp at interlochen with my retrio for the second year very excited andrea i'm so excited for you that sounds incredible That is amazing. That's the coolest thing I've ever heard. Completely agree. I was thinking about how enviable (laughs) essentially hobbies are. Yes. You know, like a lot of times the intensity of music as a profession can make us feel, we've talked about this before, guilty Mm -hmm. for carving out times for hobbies, which, which should not be the case, but often, unfortunately, it is the case. Well, unfortunately, there's only so many hours in a day and so many days in a week. We're going to make Andrea the mascot of the Double Read Dish. Pursue your hobbies. Well, Cassandra's uh, summer excitement is exciting to me, but probably not to Gwyneth. Uh, Starting a new job and pending some travel grant funding, IDRS Thailand. (laughs) If you see Gwyneth, pretend like she's not there. She doesn't want to see you. She needs a break. She's on an oboe break. Cassandra, please, please. (laughs) No, Cassandra, I'm so glad you're going to get that experience. It's going to be phenomenal. Uh, I actually will not be at IDRS Thailand. If this vice president thing truly came out of the clear blue sky, if I had known, I would have made arrangements to be there. But unfortunately, it just kind of came at two. What is that called? Seventh hour? 
like something that happens late. It happens at the 11th hour, 11th hour. It happened at the 11th hour. Uh, but I will be in Flagstaff. So I hope to see you in Flagstaff. Oh yeah. I'm not going to Thailand either. Sorry, y'all. I'm giving Gwyneth her space. <laughs> Gwyneth said. And then uh, Ariel is going to G- Glickman Popkin. I got it right. Glickman Popkin bassoon camp. So cool. And then getting married. Bassoonist, did you all enjoy listening to an oboist try to say Glickman Popkin bassoon camp? <laughs> I was like, Glimpman Pop Poop bassoon. No. <laughs> <laughs> ACDC Reads is a one-woman bassoon read shop in Minnesota run by Ariel Detweiler, producing over 1,200 reads per year. Selling beginner and advanced level bassoon reads, ACDC Reads are hailed by customers for their even intonation, ease of response in all registers, warm tone quality, and strong low register. Every read is made from tube cane processed in-house to Ariel's specifications using Rigotti or Lavaro cane and a Rieger 1A shape. You'll also find bassoon-themed gifts in the shop, including greeting cards, stickers, artistic prints, and the ever-popular Blackwing Bassoon Pencil. Make sure to follow ACDC Reads on Instagram, where Ariel posts artistic photos and educational stories about her everyday experiences with readmaking. ACDC Reads is proud to sponsor Double Read Dish, sharing positive and uplifting interviews to inspire and connect the bassoon community around the world. Find ACDC Reads at acdcreads.com or at retailers like Chemical City Double Reads, Midwest Musical Imports, or Read Supplies Canada. Try out ACDC Reads today and let the read do the work. Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at www.chemicalcityreads.com. We are elated to welcome to Double Read Dish, Evan Kuhlman, solo contrabassoon and section bassoon of the Los Angeles Philharmonic. Welcome, Evan. Hi, good morning. We would love to start by asking you, how did you start playing the bassoon? Oh, gosh, it's sort of a long story. But um, in short, uh, I always start by saying I'm the son of two rock drummers. And um, it leaves out that my mom also played the oboe. But uh, they started me in Suzuki piano pretty early. Um, In fourth grade, the band director came and kind of demoed all the band instruments uh, to us. And I I still kind of wanted to be a piano player, but my friends were doing band. So I picked up the clarinet. In three years, I probably practiced like three times at home. I I really did not give that instrument its due. Um, (laughs) But... You, you do what you can. I had moved sort of into jazz piano when jazz band was being offered. And uh, bassoon came about really that uh, my mom was playing uh, the Rite of Spring a lot at home or Firebird. You know, having a musical family, I was exposed to these things. I was pretty sure that the opening solo in Rite was like a saxophone of some kind. But I just know that I liked the sound a lot. And it would be years before I even learned those notes. But um, that was sort of the goal from the very beginning. 
um, I got really lucky in that my mom knew uh, the second bassoonist in the Seattle Symphony, Paul Raffinelli, um, through musical connections. And Paul said, you've got to go meet Francine, uh, Francine Peterson, who was my first teacher. And uh, the rest is sort of history. Well, talk us through getting serious about the bassoon and deciding that you want to pursue it as a career in college, that type of thing. That's something that, you know, I, when I started again, it was just kind of like, this is my band instrument. Um, but, but at least I actually like this one and I chose it for reasons more than that. There was one in the basement, you know, um, I just thought it looked cool and it sounded cool. But the thing that really clicked things for me was, uh, playing in the Seattle youth symphony programs. Um, I had been a part of a program called Endangered Instruments, which was amazing. I got uh, free group lessons at school, um, which was just really kind of set me on my way. Um, and playing in the in the orchestras, I mean, it started with just arrangements of this and that. But eventually we moved on to the point, I think it was my freshman year of high school. And um, the, the first concert of that school year uh, had Stravinsky's Petrushka on it. And it was just kaboom. I, I mean, I thought, oh my gosh, this this is this is what this could be. Um, it's just so many colors. I, I've always been more drawn to what could be done with a large and diverse ensemble. Um, I like playing solo and chamber stuff just fine, but that was that was sort of it. And I started just asking questions of anybody that I could, like, how do I make this my thing? And uh the advice I was given there, you know, kind of led me on uh, the, the path I eventually took. So uh, talk us through then your training and educational journey and how you got to where you are today. Sure, sure. So, um, so yeah, I, I have to give a ton of credit to um, studying piano, um, especially the Suzuki method with Pam Chang in Seattle. It, that was foundational. And there's so many things that she taught me in music that I still think about all the time, especially stuff about uh, phrasing and harmony, um, you know, that are more evident on like a polyphonic instrument than a monophonic instrument, but I still use all the time. And when I kind of burnt out on classical piano, she was a hundred percent supportive of me doing jazz piano, which was also huge. Um, my band director in middle school, Bob Nat, was foundational, uh, really an incredible music educator. Someone who, when I was really struggling, took an entire period to just take me into one of the like back band rooms and say, what do you want to do? And that was the first time I ever said out loud that I wanted to be a professional musician and play in a professional symphony orchestra to anybody, including myself. Um, and he said that that's that's what you're going to do that we're, we're going to make this happen. Um, he was one of those directors who was willing to take that time. I'm so grateful because that was the beginning of everything. Uh, Francine was an incredible teacher of fundamentals and bassoon and life. And uh, when she felt like I'd reached a certain point, she had gotten a call, I think a recruiting call from Barry Stees at Interlochen who she said, I think you should do this. Um, I had, was really struggling by that point in other aspects of like just trying to make it through the school day, having kind of a rough time in high school, to be totally honest. And 
going to Interlochen was like, I was just very, very lucky to, they needed bassoons that year. I was able to get a scholarship, spent two years there before going to Juilliard. Um, Eric Stees and Eric Stomberg were my teachers. They set me up better than I could possibly have imagined, better than I deserved based on the practicing I was doing at the time. Um, and yeah, then I, then I was at Juilliard and uh, studying with Frank Morelli, who put up with me for another five years. Um, my final year at Juilliard, I did a double degree program with composition, and I ended up uh, finishing a graduate diploma in composition. And that's a whole nother talk, but hopefully that is a not too long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> Can we hear about embarking on your professional journey? Sure, sure. I I came into Juilliard kind of listening to, uh, you know, some of the upperclassmen, um, maybe more even sometimes than my teachers. That was a mistake. <laughs> but the attitude was like, oh, yeah, I, I, there were people saying, if you don't get a job by the time you finish your undergrad, then blah, 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 blah. I mean, I, I should not have taken that to heart, but I think sometimes you know, some of us just latch on to the scariest thing that we hear or the worst case scenario. And certainly that described me at the time. So I I was super, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like precocious. And I wanted to take all these auditions and just work on my excerpts and stuff like this. But um, I was so fortunate that I had a teacher who was, who continues to be much wiser than me <laughs> and Frank Morelli, who just kind of kept me on like, hey, let's, let's work on music. Let's, you know, but let's, let's get better at the bassoon. Let's, let's kind of stay the path. And when the time is right, the time will be right. Um, so I, I took maybe one or two auditions, but um, not, not with the kind of degree of seriousness that I was eventually going to need. And the thing that kind of changed things for me was that I had just started grad school and ironically, I had just forged this totally different path where now I was going to also compose. It was something that I'd always been interested in and done a little bit of. I started taking lessons for non-majors in my undergrad. And then I just, I mean, pulled a lot of all-nighters to prepare applications for programs. I ended up getting into both programs at Juilliard. So the idea was that I was going to do a three-year program and end up with like two master's degrees. But as luck would have it, you know, sort of famously, I don't know if it's still this way, but on the fourth floor at Juilliard, there used to be a wall where they would put all the, you know, orchestra job postings uh, from from the international musician. And I just saw this one that was Oregon Symphony, you know, bassoon and contrabassoon. And um, I was, I guess I was homesick, you know, I was kind of thinking like, what's going to get me back to the Pacific Northwest? I mean, yeah, Jackie, you're in the, the Pacific Northwest. You know what a special place it is. I'm sure everywhere in America is special uh, for, for different reasons, but... Not like the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> We're biased, but, you know... Okay, quit bragging! <laughs> yeah, I, I grew up in Washington, so I'm a native Washingtonian, so, yeah. yeah. Not like the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> I mean, it's... I just think it may, you know, it's... it's if, if I'd grown up somewhere different, I'm sure I would feel differently, but I just thought how many chances like this am I really going to have? Um, and I decided I was just going to go for it with everything I had. Um, not at all expecting that I was going to get the job, uh, but just, just willing to, willing to set other things aside for the moment and say, 
this is this is my one thing for the next i think it was like six weeks or something i i wish i had seen it sooner but um i will say this like i was very lucky that by that time i was starting just like really starting to break into some of the new york city freelancing and that started with me just saying yes to anything and everything um older students who had worked their way into gigs kind of bequeathing their gigs that they didn't want to do anymore to me i mean i was <laughs> i was getting a bassoon and a contra bassoon i didn't own my own i would take one from the school which was not um entirely kosher but i did it anyway um you know i had friends who kind of showed me the ropes um so i'd have these two instruments and then stands for each instrument um and i'd be you know standing because there was nowhere to sit on like the long island railroad just taking it way out to you know I, I basically leaving school at like right after classes, maybe four or 5 p.m., taking the train out, playing a rehearsal at night, getting back to uh, my apartment in Washington Heights, you know, at like midnight or something. So it would take the whole day and I'd maybe make like $20. And um, I'm not endorsing that for anybody, but that's how I started. That was me embarking on a professional journey, just saying yes and showing up and doing it. I, again, I don't recommend it to everybody. Um, it's simply what I did. Um, and it did, you know, showing up and being prepared and being on time. Um, some people noticed and said, hey, I've got this other gig that I do. Would you be interested in doing that? And one thing kind of led to another, I guess. But all of a sudden, everything just changed when I saw this posting. And I thought, I guess this plan that I have to stay in New York is just going to go completely out the window. Um, I could talk about the audition process in Oregon, but the long and short of it is just that it, it did work out. Um, I started there over the course of the next couple months and I stayed there for 12 years. Um, it was not immediately apparent that that was going to be the thing. Um, I had a lot of reservations about leaving school. Was I, you know, I was kind of thinking like, am I, you know, am I undercooked? You know, um, was there, was there more I needed to stay and do? Um, and the answer is probably yes. Um, I tried to teach myself those lessons and pick them up from other more experienced musicians on the job. And that was, that, that was really the beginning of my professional journey. I'd love to hear, um, more about your audition process because you had said, well, I wish I'd seen that posting sooner. And this was the first audition I really took seriously. So what did, what does that process look like for you? Well, since then I've, I've, I've only taken three auditions, but each one of those times, you know, I'm trying to think, you know, I, I deal six months, six weeks would be like my absolute minimum. Um, I, I, it might sound like a lot to some folks. I don't know, but for me, uh, that's, that's kind of the minimum of what it takes. Um, from ideally, you know, like when I was preparing for LA, I think I gave almost three months to it. Um, and I, I, I'm not necessarily one of these people who has like, uh, I, I don't, I, I don't mean to malign this at all. I think it's a great idea. Um, but you know, I think know thyself is maybe the most important lesson here. And I just knew I'm not one of these people who's going to make like a, I'm doing hand gestures. I apologize. <laughs> Podcasts famously are visual media, but, um, <laughs> you know, people make these charts and it's like, okay, today I spent three 
minutes and 20 seconds exactly running Figaro. And then I moved on to Bolero and I ran it for a minute, but then I went back to Figaro and I spent 57 seconds. I mean, that's very commendable. Um, the, the people who think of it that way, it's not me. I like to think bigger picture, larger chunks kind of a thing. Um, I'm, I'm, I might divide a list into three and have like one day that's part one, one day that's part two, one day that's part three. But um, that's just, my brain kind of works better that way. Um, and I can't stress this enough, but like month one for me is like, where am I in reads? What's going on? You know, it has to be by definition. Like I just have to be deep in blanks, period. And a story. And for the LA audition, I, I mean, I had an absurd, I think more contra reads than I've ever had in my life. And one of the things that was kind of interesting about it, um, you know, was like, I, I had this like pile, I think it was 48. I don't know why I like round numbers like that, but I think it was like 48 reads that were like specifically devoted to this audition. And so I'm cycling them. I'm practicing them. You know, they're, they're not really ready to go until a few weeks before the audition anyway, but I'm just kind of, you know, babying them through the process and going one by one. Um, to the point I finally got down and this, this was not advisable, but I did it anyway. I played at the Cabrillo festival for contemporary music, like the, the two weeks before the audition. Um, you know, so I'm like on bassoon playing like high E's and F's and stuff. And then I'm going back and practicing while all my colleagues are having fun on the beach or, you know, having a beer or whatever, you know, and I'm playing low C sharps at pianissimo and contra, um, and trying to find the reads that will do that. Um, that's another tough thing about auditions. Um, Beric Steese is a really great, I don't know if it's still on his website, but I would imagine a document, you know, and it lists some of the things that he did to, to get to where he is. And he says, I'm not proud of all of these. I, I, I'm tra- paraphrasing, but, but this is, these are sacrifices I felt like I had to make at the time. Um, just remember, it's, it's all temporary. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think this is a way to live, but I'll tell you that for three months, I, I did six days a week minimum, six hours a day, two in the morning, two in the middle of the day, and two at night. Uh, the morning, I'm just trying to warm up and kind of get in gear, find out where I am. The middle of the day, I'm doing a lot of read work. And at night, um, I, I'm, I'm really focusing on playing related things, including recording myself, which I cannot recommend highly enough. Uh, I played for a lot of people, but I kind of wait to do that. And I basically want to be entirely ready for the audition three weeks out. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a random number, but it's a good number for me. Six weeks out, I want to be playing for people. I don't really want to play for people in the last three weeks. That's just me saying, I'm as ready as I'm going to be. And I'm just going to keep uh, trying to focus on consistency. And um, that was my LA process. I did the same thing um, when I auditioned for Chicago a while back. Um, or the Met before that, you know, and it's really difficult. The timing for LA worked perfectly because uh, in Oregon, we worked more or less nine months out of the year. And then I had the summer for, you know, personal projects and music festivals. I said no to a lot of festivals at the risk of, you know, my finances that summer because I knew I needed to practice, but I kept two on my schedule. One was Cabrillo. I figured it was kind of all the way it's already kind of down there and I should in theory already be prepared for this audition. The other was um, Woodwinds at Wallawa Lake, which is just, that's where my heart is. And I thought if I'm not doing things that are 
spiritually and, you know, and emotionally fulfilling um, during this process, I'm not going to make it. It's too much time to devote to such a single-minded task. And that is a music camp in Northeastern Oregon, where I taught for many years and uh, routinely had between 10 and 20 bassoon players between 13 and 18. And just, just one of the most supportive, wonderful environments, at least that we tried to create as a faculty uh, up there. Uh, Karen Miller is still teaching there um, and, and is continuing the tradition. Um, for those who are in that area, I can't recommend it highly enough. But um, even there, where the teaching schedule was so rigorous, I mean, you start at like 9 in the morning and go to like 9 p.m. And with very few breaks, uh, I would take every break that I had and go to a practice hut and and play scales. Sometimes just that, you know, I can tell you that sometimes just playing like a B melodic minor scale, uh, sorry, B flat really slowly is better than practicing Tchaikovsky for like, how many more times do we need to do that? Mm-hmm. If you've done it enough, you know, you just want to make sure you're comfortable in these notes. You can play them in tune at any dynamic in any combination, you know, you feel good about your slurs and you feel good about, um, you know, executing crescendos or diminuendos on any note um, without sacrificing tone and intonation. The scale itself can be more valuable sometimes than the excerpt when you get to that point, I think. And that's what I would do. Show up early and stay late at night. It was totally bonkers. I can't recommend this necessarily. I hope other people have processes that are less complicated than this. I'm sorry for being so long-winded in my answer, but... Oh, this is great. It's... it's I I want to be as detailed as I can, but also respect the fact that um, I think that the answer is going to be different for everybody and it should be Mm -hmm. Um, two things that I talk about incessantly in lessons. um, You know, one, one word I really picked up from Francine, my first teacher, which is uh, honesty, be honest with yourself in practicing. You you have to cultivate that. Um, It's, uh, you know, radical honesty, even honesty is sort of, I think an, a step towards acceptance and self-awareness. Um, they're, they're, it's hard to say which comes first, but they're all kind of intertwined, which is just to say, you know, to, to, to I, mean, I don't want to say brutally honest um, because I don't think you need to punish yourself per se, but just to, to be honest with yourself. How does this sound? How am I doing? And if you're not sure, get feedback. And keep the people in your life who, who you respect and and um, and trust to be honest with you. The other concept just kind of comes from therapy, uh, which I'm a big proponent of, and that's mindfulness. And mindfulness and honesty and self-awareness are almost synonyms at a certain point. But um, mindful practicing, I think, is the act of of going in with an intention, um, going in with with ideas, with a plan. Um, you know, I would say the opposite is mindless practice, which I did a lot of when I was a student. And um, it's it's difficult because you have to, as a teacher, I think, make an effort to teach mindful practice in lessons because it may not occur naturally to a student. I had to draw the concept from therapy, you know, I mean, um, but it's scientifically proven, among other things, to be more effective and I think it just leads to a more fulfilling relationship with the idea of practice in general, which I'll be honest, I've, I've had uh, at times a torturous relationship with the concept of practice. Um, there was a, I used to teach at a band camp and uh, 
one of the band directors made the point to the students at one point, you know, I, I'm walking around and I hear you guys practicing. And the thing I kind of want to remind you, and this is tough, but, you know, if you only sound good when you're practicing, you're not doing it right. And um, I think mindfulness and practice is a way to correct that problem, but, but you know, maintain a certain amount of compassion for, for yourself. Um, you know, that you don't just have to torture yourself by doing something that doesn't work over and over again. It's not the path to progress or knowledge to just throw yourself against the wall repeatedly. You know, taking a few steps back and, and really saying, what's not working? Why is it not working? What can I do? Can I devise something to try to address this problem that I've never tried before? And who can I consult about this? Who can I reach out to that's going to give me a path forward? So that kind of practice to me is at the crux of any serious period of, of self-improvement, but also um, sort of indispensable for auditions. I, as much as people can say bad about auditions, and I do, I have never had such concentrated bursts of, of improvement um, as I did when preparing for auditions. I don't think it's sustainable as a long-term practice, but I try to take those lessons into my daily practice. Anyway, sorry. How, how long have I been talking? Has it been 20 no, hours yet? No, this is great. <laughs> no, and um, the idea of leading with mindfulness and self-awareness and honesty and also curiosity, I think- yes leads naturally into worthwhile practice. And then it sort of takes you away from uh, taking your practice personally, like this sounded bad, therefore I am bad. Yes. And that's such a dangerous concept. Yes. And, and this is one of these things that, I mean, I'm, I'm being very vague about it because a, I'm not a professional, I am play bassoon professionally, but I'm, you know, I'm not a, uh, a, a, therapist, psychologist, psychiatrist, what have you, you know, um, this just comes from books that were recommended to me and, and, and doing it, um, you know, mindfulness being sort of a concept couched with like cognitive behavioral therapy. I'm saying these words, none of this, you know, I feel comfortable on this podcast saying here's the definition. I would just encourage any listeners to, to look this up, to ask questions about it. Um, a pivotal book for me, perhaps it would be good for you. It's, this is now sort of a classic. It's been out for many years and he's written other books, but Martin Seligman's learned optimism, um, introduced some of these concepts to me. Um, like you said, um, one of the terms he might use for the negative thought of, I, I don't sound good right now. You know, if you want to be kind to yourself then then say, I sound bad on this. Like I could say, I don't sound very good with my double tongue right now or whatever, you know, um, even then, I appended the words right now to that automatically because I've just been doing this for a long time. But I used to just say, I'm not good at this. I'm the problem. It's something within me. It feels very personal because it, it's this like physical mechanism, you know. Um, and so one, one practice, you know, since you mentioned it, Galib, is externalization. Saying like, what if this is not me? What if this is just because the right way to describe this for me um, was not something that, that I necessarily had communicated or I wasn't ready to receive that information at the time. You know, and that's another thing is sort of eliminating the um, universal and permanent status that we give negative thoughts sometimes. Like, mm -hmm. I'm never going to be good at this. I always have this problem. You know, um, I just can't do this. Uh, these, these are all things that are just sort of factually untrue. Um, they're not logical you know, we don't really think with our rational mind when we're deep in our emotions anyway. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. 
but it's a good thing to try to be aware of in your own practicing. So you can take a step back and say, wait a second, just because I didn't have it today doesn't mean I always am not going to have it. And I think that's the first step towards actually getting it because then you have the space and the freedom to say, uh, you know, I can, I can, I can take a second to, to congratulate myself on, on having, you know, had this realization and not beating myself up. And now I can start to be more, like you said, curious. Another word I mm-hmm. like is creative in practice, you know, try to come up with creative solutions. Uh, sometimes I think we're just so deep in the problem. It's like standing, you know, you know, at, at nose length to like a wall, mm-hmm. you're not going to see anything but the wall. But if you take five steps backwards, you might see that there was a door you know, eight feet over to your right that you couldn't possibly have seen when you were in the thick of it. And, um, you know, I'm speaking very metaphorically and, you know, ab- about the sort of mental concept of this. I promise that when I actually teach, I, I talk a lot more about like, here's where maybe you want to be on the read and here's the kind of want to read you have, you know, I mean, um, read you want to have, uh, here's, here, here's where you might keep your tongue here, you know, blah, 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 you know, try this fingering. You know, I also like to talk about practice patterns and methods, and mm-hmm. I've developed these strategies over years because, because I had to, because there were things that I still couldn't do, but I was out of school. I mean, I'll be honest here, um, at the at the risk of embarrassing myself professionally, but I couldn't. We love embarrassing ourselves professionally. Good, <laughs> I I do it every day without even trying, so I'm I'm an expert. That's the but, double um, read. They'll do that to you. <laughs> but uh, you know, I mean, I, I couldn't play Beethoven four when I got my first gig. Um, absolutely not. Could not make it through that. Um, I'm grateful that the committee took a chance on me anyway. There, there was something else perhaps and the music director, but you know, there was something else perhaps that I did put forward. And of course, you know, it doesn't happen often that the contrabassoon player ends up playing principal bassoon on Beethoven four, but it actually did a couple times, uh, while I was in Oregon. So, so there you go. Um, but the long and short of it was that I got the job kind of knowing like, okay, like, Whatever I've been running from here, I need to start embracing, um, you know, and uh, and I had to get really creative with it. Um, I did go back a lot to what my teachers had told me, um, and eventually it started working for me. Um, but but in the process, I had to invent, you know, my own etudes and mm-hmm. ideas and and just experiment. I try to think of myself as a scientist, tweak all the variables until it's like, okay, this works and that works. Do they work in combination? Maybe yes, maybe no. Um, that's, that's something I really would want to impress on anyone listening is that I still, to the extent of my ability, treat the practice of music making this way. That, that I mean, I, I'm a student of the art and I'm a student of the instrument and, and there's just, there's always more to learn. And it's nothing beats that point home more than teaching to me is that it's one of the very selfish reasons I love to teach is that I get so much better because sometimes, you know, I've got like my four or five stock explanations for let's say double tonguing or something, you know, what if none of them work? Then what do you do as a teacher? And you, you, you must be creative. You kind of got to invent on the spot. And um, oftentimes I end up saying something because I'm trying to describe this feeling that I have, you know, that's, that's physical, but I'm, you know, I, I don't know. Language is a tough thing that way. You know, words mean different things to different people and language is limited to describe physical phenomenon. So you got to just get creative. And sometimes I have my own epiphanies and I, I certainly hope I'm helping the student. That's my number one priority. 
but I, th- I kind of think of it as like a sort of like a little, it's a little kickback. It's like a tip that I give myself, you know, in every lesson, um, whether we're talking about how to put the bassoon together and play one note, you know, uh, middle C, like in the Weisenborn or, you know, whether we're working on the Mozart concerto or what have you. Well, I would love to hear about how you put all of these things into use um, to get to where you are today. So can we hear about the day of your audition, uh, winning your current position with the LA Phil? Uh, so, yeah, sure, sure. This took, um, I think, three days. Mm, I'm trying God. to remember, right? Um, I played three rounds. I'm trying to think. No, it was two days. The second two rounds were on the same day. Okay. Um, but yeah, I did uh, the ridiculous thing. I, I won't soon forget this because we were playing at Cabrillo. We were playing Aaron J. Kernis' Second Symphony. And I, I was the principal bassoon there for a while. And it has these screamy high E solos. They're not easy. Um, they're fun, you know, if, if you've got a setup where you feel pretty comfortable. But I'm doing that, you know, and then... The next day I drove down, I think it was, I don't know, six or eight hours, you know, in my 2002 Honda Civic, just booked it down the uh, California coast to Los Angeles and stayed with a friend of mine, um, you know, tested a couple reads and the next day I had to play. Um, again, would I recommend it to anyone? I don't know. It's just the way that it happened for me. Go figure. Um, I had to rely on my preparation, which again, not, not to beat a, you know, um, tired horse, but it's, you know, I, my feeling is that three weeks out, you got to know, I, I got a good shot at this or maybe don't do it. Some people say take it for the experience. I don't want to contradict those people, but I, I don't endorse that um, viewpoint myself. Um, I, I think time might be better spent practicing. Who knows what? Maybe the thing that you really need to practice is not excerpts for an audition. It's such a specialized thing. But I felt like I was ready. Check my reads, you know. The thing about having like 48 reads or so is that I only had two that I thought were any good. And maybe that means I'm a bad read maker. Maybe I was just really picky by that point in time. What I think is more accurate is just that, and this you can't control this about an audition, um, but climates are different. Yeah. I, I, I was able to kick a few other ones into rotation by working on them. But when I brought them back to Portland, they were useless. So LA is dry and hot, especially in August, which is when I was auditioning, mm. you know, and I was coming from Santa Cruz where there's a Marine layer that blows in every morning. So your reads are different in the morning than they are at night. And there's rehearsals at morning and night there. So that's fun too. Anyway, <laughs> long story short, uh, you know, yeah, I, I, I get there. It's sort of inevitable. I, I mean, I, I, I'm not one of these people to be totally honest. And I, I have nothing but respect for, for the people who, who say, well, it took me 40 tries, but I finally got it. Um, I, I was very lucky, you know, that I've still taken fewer than 10 auditions, um, maybe like six, um, you know, and LA was my sixth. Um, but I, had no, I knew enough by then to expect I was going to run into people. This always happens. It's a small world, especially contrabassoon, right? Mm-hmm. You just, you know it. People that you think, oh my gosh, I looked up, I look up to these people, you know, I, I, and it's not like I stop respecting them because I won the audition or something. I still look up to them. I still have so much to learn from them, you know, but seeing them there was like, okay, I, I've got to go into audition mode, which is like, 
I'm here to do my thing. I had a really influential orchestra director, Marcus Sudakawa. I remember one time we were at like an orchestra competition or something, and we heard other orchestras who were really good. And he said, you know, we were talking amongst ourselves, like maybe we should do this or, you know, what if we, he just said, guys, just let's come. We, we came here. Let's, let's just do what we came to do. So I did what I came to do to the best of my abilities. You know, um, I made it another round, did it again, made it another round, you know, um, a friend of mine uh, quoted one of her teachers as saying, let, let the, let the other candidates eliminate themselves. It's kind of brutal. I don't, I don't, I don't wish, I, I hope everyone does this as well as they possibly can, especially now that I'm on the other side of the screen. But, um, you know, you just, you go and you do as well as you can. I don't, I, we've all had this experience. And if you haven't, you probably will. And I'm so sorry, but we've all had this experience, I think, where we encounter someone who maybe we don't know for sure, but it really seems like they're trying to play mind games with us. Maybe trying to like throw us off or put us into a weird headspace by talking to us. I don't mind saying a few words to people. I think it's weirder if you like specifically shut down and say nothing to the people that you might be friends with, but, um, or, or if, you know, had an experience with once upon a time, but I do try to keep it to like just a few words, you know, like at some point we got to realize we're, we're here for the same reason. So to make a long story longer, you know, yeah, I, I just get, I kept getting called back until there were just two of us. Um, and, uh, you know, honestly, when I, there were four in the finals and when, when I saw who they were, I just thought like, I'm, I'm just glad to be here. Honestly, the semifinals, um, I would say there were probably about 15 of us. And for whatever reason, the personnel manager got us all together in the same room and then announced who was advancing. And being in that room, I can't even tell you. I mean, just, I was really happy how cool people were in general. I'll tell you that. Contributionists were chill. You know, that's the, that's the stereotype, right? Um, and it's mostly true. Um, but it, it was a lot of people, I think part of it is that we don't get together that often. And this is one of the things I really wanted to make sure I said before I, before I, you know, I'm kicked out of here for blabbing incessantly is <laughs> what you guys have done with this podcast that I, that I love perhaps more than anything is build community. We, we can always do more of that as, 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 as human beings, as bassoon players or oboists or double reed players. I mean, as musicians, uh, I, I think especially as people. You know, I'm not going to get super political, but I, I, I do think the future is local. I, I think, you know, in a world that's increasingly connected, you know, I mean, who knows who could hear this podcast? Someone on another continent, for all I know. Um, you know, heaven forbid someone in like a spaceship or something. But, you know, I mean, <laughs> who knows, right? Have not have not yet shown us. <laughs> yeah, intergalactic <laughs> listenership. Double it's double read dish on, on the on the ISS. Uh, it's coming. It's coming. <laughs> but yeah, I think one of the great things about being so interconnected is that you know we have these amazing resources. I adore Kristen Wolf Jensen's music in the bassoon. Um, I wish something like that had existed for the last two hundred fifty years. You know, mm-hmm. um, I to date myself, I still grew up in an era where. Sorry, I, I know I'm supposed to be talking about the audition, but I, I feel like this needs to be said. I grew up in an era where my teacher would give me an assignment like 
and of course I was going in person for lessons. I mean, that wasn't you know, an option. So I'm there and the assignment is like, you need to go get this, you know, recording of whatever, of, you know, Milan Turkovich's, you know, Mozart with Academy of St. Martin in the Fields, or, you know, here's, um, you know, Bernie Garfield's Alvarado del Gracioso or something, you know, I'd go get this. And that was the assignment. And it's like, okay, I'm going to record stores. I'm going, there's a place, you know, Silver Platters, I think it might be still be there, you know, um, picking up CDs. Or you had to mail order it. I mean, Forrest mm-hmm. was a catalog you got in the mail, you know, and there weren't many of them. Um, now it's like, oh my gosh, you can get everything with one click. And still, I struggle to get my students to do this. Mm-hmm. Still, I'm like, it's five bucks to pick up the Bordeaux, you know, um, Rubank edition, you know, and, you know, Trevco is going to ship it to you in like a day. And, and I just, you know, and I know they've all got phones, you know, because I see them on it before, after, and regrettably, I, I don't allow it in the lesson, but, you know, but it's like, come on, guys, like this, you know, this was hard for us back in the uh-huh. day. I, I'm sounding like such a cranky uh, old timer. No, we're was, with you. We're also cranky old timers. It was harder for the people before me, but you guys have done this amazing thing. I mean, you're getting perspective and information out to people um, for free. That is that, that you used to have to travel a long distance, pay a lot for, and was only available sporadically. And and now it's like, here it is. It's so great. Um, it's so great that, you know, Kristen's got her thing. And, um, you know, and the IDRS has great resources. And, and we're working to do this. But there's just no replacement. Like, I think people got to do this. I always try to get my students to do this. And I was raised this way. Um, Francine Peterson, thank you, thank you, thank you, that she made us do duets and trios from a young age quartets when we when we were able to play the music she had all the bubonic uh bassoon quartets you know uh, now there are so many people are getting so creative with arranging i love it you know um but get together and play you learn so much you have such a good time and you learn to support each other we we're so much stronger together in a supportive community than we are splintered and kind of like secretly you know disliking or envying each other or what have you um so I'm just so glad that I felt in that moment, I was like part of a community, mm-hmm. but I kept getting asked to do stuff again. The final thing I, I, I guess I could maybe mention about that audition process. Um, I, I did get some feedback in the super finals. I was asked to go back to an excerpt I had previously played and make an adjustment. And that, that is, that is never a kiss of death. It means like they, they really want to hear you do this well. Um, it's always a good sign. If no one talks to you, that could be a good sign too. But I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry too much either way. You know, simply do the best you can, do what you came to do, and if you get the chance to do it again with a suggestion, perhaps, you know, do your best. That's all you can try to do. There's so many ways I could talk about how to prepare to do that. I've got all these, you know, stuff I like to listen to or books I've read. But um, you know, it's it's all it's all important. Know thyself. Ask as many people as you can for advice. Um, I did the best I could. I think I did a pretty good adjustment. Like I went back to my room and put my horns away. And a few minutes later, the personnel manager said, Hey, you know, come with me. I said, Oh, do I have to play again? Do I need my instruments? And he said, I don't think so. I thought he was just going to like take me to a room and be like, you didn't make it. Good luck. (laughs) But he kept walking and we kept walking. And then eventually I was like, wait, we're backstage. And then he walked me back onto the stage and he made this motion towards the screen. And I said, should I go over there? He said, yeah. 
And so I walked out and I saw the committee and Gustavo Dudamel and they all started clapping and I probably cried. I mean, (laughs) I think I said something really dumb, you know, one thing I did say, because I, I realized I was saying something dumb and I was like, wait a second. And I just thought, and I just said, I hope I make you all proud. Oh, it was, it was when I finally had time to think, cause my, you know, your brain is racing a mile a minute. It's like, is this really happening to me? Um, but I'll, I'll tell you, and I want to be totally transparent about this. When I first got to Oregon, like I said, I had, I had some regrets and second thoughts. When I first got here, I had regrets and second thoughts. You know, I mean, transitioning at this point in your life is a tricky thing. Um, you know, I had a really good thing going in Oregon and I had a good thing going in New York. Um, it took a while to build those things, but, um, you know, and I was scared. Like, am I going to be able to do this again? Am I going to be able to do this at this age? I mean, I hear how, you know, 20 year olds play, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm glad I got in when I did, but, um, you, you know, I the, the other day I was working with a seventh grader through YOLA, which is um, the youth orchestra program through uh, the LA Phil and, I just told him in all honesty, I, I, I don't always like to do comparisons in lessons. I just said, you are so f- much further than I was at your age. I mean, you know, I don't mean to say it because I think you can, you can afford to take your foot off the gas necessarily, but I just want you to know, like, you know, if, if you want this, it's here for you. Anyway, um, auditions, they're also the worst, right? I mean, it's, you know. <laughs> I've, I've, I've come so close a couple times and just uh, one story I always tell, I'm not going to tell the whole story because it takes forever. Um, and I've already taken so much of your time, but I'll just tell you, like, I, I had probably like, some people like to say auditions are like performances. I'm going to use the word performance. I don't know whether I disagree or agree. I'll have to think about it, but I had arguably the worst performance of my entire life. Um, in the final round of an audition in front of, this was not screened. Uh, in LA, it was screened all the way through the super finals, which I think is fantastic. And I, I support wholeheartedly, but um, every, everyone does it their own way. Uh, it was not screened. So I'm looking out at some of my, not just double read, but like wind playing idols and, and also a very famous music director who ironically was in like the second or third row. And then everyone else is sitting further back. And um and there I am. And I proceeded to, to just entirely unravel. I don't tell this story for any reason more than to make a couple quick points. Um, one of those is that, you know, you will survive. <laughs> we, we've, we've been there. It was neither the first time that I'd had a moment like that, nor the last. It may have been to date, like one of the more severe, but I'm still here mm-hmm. and my story didn't end there. And, um, and it didn't go back to, well, and that never happened again. And he never took a chance again. That's just not how it ended up happening. And it doesn't have to. Um, the other thing I, I just want to say, sometimes I'm, I, I talked about this once in a, in a forum and I worry that I was misunderstood based on some of the comments that followed. Um, but I just want to remind everyone out there who for one reason or another may feel that they struggle with something like anxiety. Um, 
just remember, I mean, yes, it's good to talk to your teachers about this, but at the end of the day, as, as much counseling as I feel like I sometimes do in lessons and received from my teachers, you know, I, my degree is in bassoon performance. You know, I, I was very lucky to go to Juilliard at a time where Joseph Polisi was the president and he really wanted to develop more broad thinkers. That said, it was still a pretty single-minded program. I had a few classes that were outside the norm, but, um, you know, famously Don Green was there. He's, he's wonderful at, at a lot of this stuff, um, performance anxiety and peak performance and flow state psychology and all of this stuff that I could talk about. But, um, an Alexander technique, which was incredible, highly recommend for everybody. Um, but you know, I, these things are so cost prohibitive, but in college it was like, Oh, they were free. Take advantage of these opportunities while you're a student because it, it's, it becomes harder and harder to engage with them. But finally, I just want to mention, like, I, I did feel the need at some point, and I'm so glad I did to say like, I need to talk to an expert. Mm -hmm. I mean, I need to go to someone who studied this specifically. We can think, you know, I could tell you that I've studied it because I read a lot of books about it. I didn't go to school for this. You right. know, it was not my primary focus. I did it in a way that was specifically directed at addressing me and the issues that I was having. You know, when I finally did, um, I learned about things that I had not learned before. Um, prior to that date, I had never taken beta blockers, for example. And I, I, I'm not here to recommend them necessarily. I'm just here to say that I recommend talking to your doctor. It was a thing that I talked to with my doctor and with my therapist. And we said, we're going to try this and see how it works for you. And I tried it later that year. I had to play principal bassoon on Tchaikovsky four on a set. Um, the week before I had just done Ravel G major piano concerto as principal. I mean, this is for a contrabassoon player, tough stuff to do. And I was getting kind of anxious and I thought, let's do it now. And I did. And uh, the, the first performance of the Tchaikovsky four, I did not, I kind of barely made it to be totally honest. The second performance I had one of the best performances of my career. And I'm not saying this is some kind of miracle thing. There are plenty of people I know who were like, nah, not for me. And I think that's great. Mm -hmm. Or who have other approaches to it. I no longer take them. I, I have, I have other ways that I, that I deal with this issue, but, um, I just want to remind people because I, I know there's still a stigma about it and like, Oh, chemicals and this and that. Well, treat your body in the way that you want to treat your body. It's yours, you know, and theoretically no one can take that away from you. And I, I think that everyone has the right to make these decisions for themselves. But one thing that I can say that my, my doctors gave me that um, musicians really kind of couldn't was a certain amount of, confidence and expertise that allowed this to totally turn around for me. And I absolutely, you know, I, full transparency. Like, I mean, I don't think I could have made it through the LA audition experience without, without this, not a chance. I, I just think there, there are times where something's got to give, I guess. I, I don't know how to put it, but um, you know, just really maintain an open mind and, there's a great book called The Death of Expertise. You know, uh, let, let's, let's not forget, you know, um, sometimes that there are people who have devoted their lives to things like this. Mm -hmm. And um, 
I, I'm trying to devote my life to getting better at the bassoon and helping others do the same. Um, you know, I would like to think that someone would come to me before, you know, they just, I don't know, Googled the word bassoon on the internet and trusted the first thing that they read, you know, <laughs> but, um, you know, or, 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 or went to like, you know, a viola teacher who's like, well, I'll tell you if you're playing the wrong notes or not, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I wouldn't never, I would never deign to, to be that person for someone else. So to make a long speech even longer, I guess I just want to say that, you know, uh, there, there are a lot of people out there who just sincerely want to help you. And, um, and, and we can be those people for others too. Um, I think that's one of these ways that we build community. So um, I, I just, I don't know. That's the world I want to see. My sister uh, is one of my all-time heroes. Um, I hope she listens to this. I don't know if she will or not. <laughs> I'm really bad at self-promotion. I don't even have a website and I should. because I have all these <laughs> arrangements that I want to give to people. But, um, she's better at it. Um, she, she's, she, she had that kind of gene or, or, or confidence or something. She, in addition to, she plays fourth horn with the Seattle Symphony, but she also is a wonderful singer. And um, it was very happy for me growing up. Like I would play jazz piano behind her while she was singing. That was a good place for me. I'm like behind a piano. So like not as many people can see me maybe, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and I'm just kind of doing my thing, you know, and, and she's the main act. And that, that suited me just fine. I've always enjoyed being a part of a whole. But because of that, she had the opportunity. She was giving a speech and she said something which I think is just so astute. I, I'm constantly blown away by the brilliant things that she comes up with. Um, but she said, you know, one of the reasons that she loves, um, you know, orchestra so much is that it's like a microcosm of the best things that, you know, humanity could be, that everyone is coming to it from a different place and everyone has a different skill set and everyone's doing sort of a different thing and playing their own part, you know, but we all are in, we're all individually dedicated to this thing that we do and showing up ready to be a part of something bigger, showing up, having prepared, showing up, having sought the best advice we could get, um, showing up, being dedicated to our craft. And then we come together and, um, and we get to put those pieces together. And it's like the things that we do together are to me, you know, someone else could say, no, I'd rather hear the Barrio Sequenza or the Mignone Valsas. Those are wonderful pieces. But to me, I got to say like, you know, man, I don't know. I'm, I'm so lucky. Is, is all I can say in my job. Like, you know, I'm playing Daphnis one week or I play Brahms for the, the next week. And, you know, I don't know. And, and, and I love new music. There's stuff being written all the time. Where do I get the music for Pong? Um, oh my gosh, it's such a great piece. Or the Connor Chi piece on your album. Oh my God, these are so good. Um, there's incredible music like this being written all the time. And these would be nice pieces if they were for solo, you know, oboe or whatever, but but they're even better, you know, when we, when we get to, to do this together, especially like, you know, I can tell those pieces are really clearly written with an eye on interaction. Pong, of course, especially, you know, um, mm-hmm. being what it's about, but mm-hmm. yeah, I, I just, I gotta, I gotta, yeah, make more music together, seek people out. And my advice to students always is like, do not go hang out with like the cool kids who are smoking outside of the music school, you know, go find the people who are in the practice room and are really excited about band. Band dorks. I'm still a band dork. I, Are I wish, we all? You know, man, I, I just, you know, I, I talked about Petrushka, but um, all state band doing Russian Christmas music by Alfred Reed. 
I never played in like a, I don't know, maybe Jackie, you know, but like, you know, some of the band programs were where I was growing up, it was either you went to orchestra or jazz band. So symphonic band was really kind of maligned in Seattle. Um, and then all of a sudden I was a part of this like real symphonic band. And, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, euphoniums and contrabass clarinet. I mean, oh, I'm sorry, but like, you know, Daftus is great, but so is that. Right. Yeah. Man, give me Russian Christmas music any day. Anyway, I love all, I'll, I love a lot of pieces. So what can I say? Our favorite question to close with is um, advice for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours. And earlier you mentioned um, the things you learn from behind the screen. So maybe we mm. could combine those mm -hmm. questions into uh, one uh, super advice. <laughs> you bet, Jackie. Thank you. Um, one that's very specific to my experience is make more reads mm. and I put that in all caps and put an exclamation point after it. Mm -hmm. um, be persistent. I think in teaching that the, the students that I have seen go the furthest, and by the way, there's no shame in saying, hmm, maybe this isn't for me at any point, you know, but, but the students who, who have, who, you know, who have really been persistent have far outpaced in terms of the progress they've made the students who were talented, but didn't really practice that much. Mm -hmm. If you're talented and persistent, good on you. But mm -hmm. persistence is the one that you absolutely must have. Uh, talent, I don't know. It's some vague thing. People always say, oh, you must have made it because your parents are musical and your sister's musical. I don't know. I don't think that was really guaranteed whatsoever um, in my own experience. Like I said, be honest. Practice mindfulness and self-awareness. Be yourself to the extent that you can. Do not be told who to be. This one is another one that is really a bit particular to me also. Um, I usually overshare in these things and I feel like I already have, but um, so at the risk of, of doing that again, I'm just going to kind of leave it there, but um, do not be told who you are. Nobody can tell you that. Um, <laughs> a, a teacher, another one, uh, a band director who, who used to say this, make better choices. Um, this is a really, I mean, it sounds kind of trite, right? <clears throat> but, you know, I, I think most of us are making the best choices we can at the time that we have to make them with the information that we have. But I, so, so I don't say this with, with any intent, but just kind of, you know, it's a thing you might think about from time to time. Like, I'm going to choose kindness today. I'm going to choose compassion. Err on the side of compassion when you're dealing with others. Um, Air on the side. Uh, I mean, I don't want anyone to be taken advantage of um, by a bad actor or something, but err on the side of that. I think you will find that you will you will be happier and and, and you know perhaps do better as well. Um, those are the things I would probably tell students. I, I you know I mean it is important it is important that you try to get a good instrument. I say this just because um, I, I've only recently started teaching in Los Angeles. I really needed the first few years to just focus on adjusting to the new job and, you know, making tenure and all these things. Um, but now that I'm kind of more comfortable here, at least a little bit, I have a lot to learn still. But um, I've taken on a few students and, man, I just, um, I'm very sad about the, 
the way that students have to try to deal with instruments that are more or less non-functional. Um, I, it, I'm reinvigorated. I have a new mission to try to figure out how to weigh, how, how to like subsidize this for bassoon players. Um, I, I would really like to work on this in the future, but to the extent that it's possible, do that. Find find a good teacher, of course, is really important. And I want to make a quick point on this, which is that I'm so grateful, like I said earlier, that, you know, the instinct was, I'm just going to go to the professional orchestra and and see, you know, and I think that was a good place for my mom to start, certainly. That is someone who was an expert in bassoon. I'm just glad that that person had enough awareness themselves and pride to say, I could do this, but who you really need to go to is this other person who who is a well-known and very successful freelancer, but do not be wowed necessarily by fancy titles. You know, um, you, you, you don't need to find the principle of X and such, whatever to get better at the bassoon or, or perhaps sometimes the best thing for you. I, I can't, I can't say enough good things about my first teacher. You know, I mean, I'm just so, so lucky that, that that's where I ended up. And that, and that that's where replaces pointed me because the first teacher is so crucial, you know? Um, anyway, uh, seek out these kind of resources. And one thing I didn't say nearly enough of, because this is after all double read dish and, you know, we're, we're coming here with an agenda of sorts, but, um, those things that are not, um, sitting behind the instrument are, are really important too. They, they really are. Um, I'm kind of a dork, like I said, and, uh, you know, that's why I got, I, I should have put this away, but I have my trombone out behind me and I'm doing about 15 minutes a day of trombone. I, it always makes me nervous when students are like, well, yeah, I also play euphonium and, and marching band. And then, you know, I'm, I'm doing a little bit of viola and then I do some clarinet, you know, it's like, okay, you know, this is, this is tricky. You know, not a lot of high schoolers are going to be really excellent at five different instruments or whatever you're trying to do. I was terrible at the trombone. I played for a very, very brief period of time, like a matter of weeks, um, one summer thinking I might try to do jazz trombone or something in jazz band in addition to piano. Um, but I was sort of curious about it. And I was like, you know what? I, I love music too much. I have a hard time finding hobbies outside of music. I feel now since I've been playing bassoon for over 25 years, like I'm probably not going to destroy my embouchure if I do 15 minutes a day of trombone. And you know, what's so amazing about it? Like you just pick it up and play bassoon. I'm like, I have like five minutes before and after. So if I have 15 minutes, I don't really have enough time to practice. I'm going to do five <laughs> minutes of what, you know, I still tell students better to do 15 minutes than zero minutes, but like, you know, man, trombone players are just like, pick it up and go, bah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> funny, huh? Anyway. Um, yeah. The, the, a life outside of music. I'm so lucky to have a partner who's a non-musician. He's absolutely wonderful. He's really into orchids. And um, we recently went to the Santa Barbara International Orchid Fair. And just, I love people who are just really into stuff, who are passionate about anything, you know? And that was one of the things about him that was just like, yep, we're, we're geeks. We're different, you know? But we're these people who just like, we found something and it was like, this is it. This is, this is me, you know? And is bassoon and contra absolutely for me and he's got his orchids also really really loves the rainforest is dragging me to madagascar in june you know cool. i know it's like oh my gosh places things that i would never think to do 
stay inspired also like go hear string quartets oh my gosh there's so many good ones um go hear a brass quintet go go see a concert that you weren't thinking you were going to go see that is my advice and and that rolls into auditions too like you, you got to just keep doing this um you know podcasts are really great for read making by the way um you know and if you if you get bold enough you might be able to watch tv but podcasts are better for me i, I still need to be able to look at what i'm doing because i'm famously bad at arts and crafts um, which is a large portion of read making um, behind the screen. Th this is one of those things like it, it's, I think it's actually kind of really fun. Um, I, I, I write really way too detailed comments when I'm writing stuff. And I'm so glad we have a system here where people can get comments. And I, I send my comments out when people ask for them nine times out of 10, they write back and say, thank you. Um, not just like a perfunctory thank you, but like, Oh my gosh. This is so helpful. Thanks for, for thinking about things that like perhaps I could practice or, or, or do better next time, as opposed to just telling me this was bad, you mm -hmm. know? Um, and I really needed that. And, and all I got sometimes was radio silence. Mm -hmm. um, but then I, I will return to what I said before, like play for people, play for your friends, your colleagues, play for your teachers, play for teachers of other instruments. You'll learn a lot. Um, yeah, that, that could be a singer for all, for all, for all I care. I mean, it's, it's really, it's really important. Um, and, and be that person for others and be, like I said, you know, choose compassion, be honest with them, but, um, but, but be compassionate as well. Um, and the words of, this is so weird, but um, I, I was listening to a podcast. This is Hayden Penetier's therapist talking that honesty without tact is cruelty. Um, and you can think about that for a second. Honesty is very important, especially with ourselves, but we, we must practice a certain amount of tact, a certain amount of compassion, a certain amount of way of finding a, a way to say it that is still honest, but, but that elevates instead of diminishes. And um, I think that's really important. Um, developing that voice within ourselves that is critical, but encouraging at the same time. Um, and, and, and treating the others that we care about with uh, the same intention. You know, nothing makes me happier than seeing other people do well on the bassoon. And I'm not too afraid to admit that there was a time where that was not true, where I wished that fellow students would have a worse audition than me. And, and it was just 100% projection and my own insecurities from having showed up to that audition, not having practiced, not having prepared, and, and feeling like I somehow still deserved it. You know, these are tough lessons, but one thing I will tell you unequivocally is that every time a new candidate walks on stage, I can think of an audition we had recently where, you know, it was like 90 prelims or something. Every time, all the way up to 90, every time I'm, I'm just, I'm starting over. Maybe this is going to be the one, you know, doesn't matter where you come. And we just, we want you to do well. And if, if things start rocky, we're still pulling for you, you know. Sometimes things start rocky and they kind of stay there. Sometimes they turn around. Um, you know, it's it's tricky. It really is. Auditions are, are no one's best friend. I think they're kind of a necessary evil, at least at this point. Maybe someday we will evolve past them. We can only hope, you know. I, I've, I've done just a couple interviews for like college teaching positions. So I know the process is a bit different there. Um, you guys are certainly more expert on this than I would be um, to talk about it. But I do feel like very much it's the same thing. Um, 
you know, if it's a spoken interview, if it's a lesson, I mean, I can't think of much that would make me happier than watching a potential new colleague come and teach a student and have that go really well. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, what, what's better than that? You know, I, I think of some of my colleagues, um, one person I have to name in particular, Sydney Carlson, who's the flute professor at uh, Portland State University, watching her teach, I mean, just a privilege, uh, an absolute privilege, and, and, and to have sat on the same like faculty as her and, and seen her students do their juries, um, you know, someone I, I felt like I learned so much from. And so another thing that I really despise is um, this attitude that like, you know, oh, I, I shouldn't study with that person because they're not the principal of the local orchestra. Give me a break. You know, I, I don't, it, yes, like I said, search out expertise. Better to, better to have someone who has some position somewhere than, you know, uh, you know, Joe Schmo off the internet, who's a very active poster on, you know, Reddit, but, you know, can't really back it up with the playing or teaching to match. But, um, you know, seek out a wide variety of perspectives before before the audition and just know that we on the other side have been there and, and we're rooting for you 100%. And it's never too late to turn it around. And even the candidates who 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 just go in and like, usually you start with your concerto, they bomb it, you know, then they bomb a couple excerpts. We, we hear three at least. And sometimes their third excerpt is like marvelous. And it's like, wow, the nerves finally faded for them. I hope that next time, you know, this, this wasn't the time other people came in and aced everything, but I hope that next time, you know, they, they learned like, okay, the nerves backed off eventually. How can I, how can I get that to happen before I set foot on stage? And it opens a, it opens a, you know, a new door. So I, we can only hope, but um, just anyone out there who is, who's out there and doing this final thought, we're, we're rooting for you. We're, we're so rooting for you. I, I wish there were positions for everybody, you know, there's not, but that's why we have to make them. That's why we have to build community. That's why we have to help people find their own way. Read my sister's interview in the international musician about forming her horn quartet, Genghis Barbie. Um, for more on that topic, but I'll leave it here. Thank you so much, Evan. This has been such a wonderful and inspiring interview, and I can't wait to share this with everyone. Thanks for joining us on Double Read Dish. Oh gosh, thanks for putting up with me, you guys. We hope you enjoyed that episode and that you're transitioning into the summer delightfully and uneventfully and that you get a bunch of rest while listening to our lovely voices in your ear, of course. Don't forget to follow and subscribe on social media so you don't miss the next episode, which is going to feature whom, Galit? We are so happy to have spoken with the lovely Leah Forsyth, Assistant Professor of Oboe at Northwestern State University of Louisiana. Jackie, let's end this third parade. Go make reads.